Welcome to Walk in the Truth Podcast. Today, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, brings a message in the Origin series that helps answer the five most important questions in life. How you live today depends on how you answer these questions. Here's John Metter with a teaching on the five questions. We are so glad that you're joining us this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them and turn to Genesis chapter two today. Genesis chapter two. I can't think of a more timely or important set of verses than what we're going to read today for your life. Nothing more applicable than what we're gonna talk about today because as we get into this message called Theologies of Life, we're going to talk about the theology of gender, the theology of marriage, the theology of sexuality. And we're gonna look at the original pattern that God gave us in Genesis chapter two in the creation account. But before we begin that, I want to remind you of the importance of foundations. You know, as I walk through Genesis, I'm always reminded of how incredibly important the foundations that underlie any of our belief systems or even our homes or wherever we are at the time, those foundations are incredibly and amazingly important. I've got a picture of what's called the Western Stone on the screen. The Western Stone is a foundational stone to the Western Wall of Jerusalem. Some of you might have guessed what that was. 3,000 years ago, that stone was laid under the Western Jerusalem wall. And it continues to upgird and hold up that Western wall today. Millions and millions of visitors will come by uh, every day to the Western wall and be amazed at all that God did in Jerusalem and all that that city represents. But that foundation stone is what holds it all up. In fact, if you were to remove the Western stone from the Western wall, can you imagine what might happen? And of course, the answer is the entire wall would crumble because it's built on that foundation, that 570-ton foundation underneath the Western Wall. Well, today, when we dive into the text, I want you to see three foundational stones, if you will, for life, for relationships, for culture. And I want you to imagine what happens when we remove those stones, those theologies from our life. Please stand with me as we read God's word, beginning in Genesis chapter two, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. As you know, Genesis chapter two is a, uh, uh, another account of the creation on the sixth day. We go into great detail of the sixth day in Genesis chapter two. You find the overview of all of creation in Genesis one. But chapter two goes into the details that help us know all that was behind God's creation. Verse 15 says, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now last week we began to talk about that. Next week we'll fully look at that. And, uh, but we move on to verse 18 here. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, if you can imagine with me, Adam in that day, naming all these animals, letting all the time go by, while realizing there's nothing that matches me. Verse 21, 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Father, in Jesus' name today, I pray that you will illuminate this text for us. Not only the immediate meaning of it, but the implications of staying with this foundation or moving off this foundation. Help us to see what goes on in the world around us. Help us to see the importance of standing firm on your foundations. Father, thank you that you foresaw all these things that we experience today. And you still call out to us with answers from eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Oh, God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated. Today's text has three foundation stones. I call them theologies for life. And the reason I call them theologies for life is because they are the perspectives of what God has given us. In Psalm chapter 11, verse 3, there's, there's a verse that the psalmist calls out to us about. It says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the question, of course, is, is if you remove all the God-given foundations that we have, what in the world is going to happen around us? And the answer in Psalm 11 is judgment will come. Judgment will come when we move away from the theology, the truths that God has given us. Now, I've used that word theology several times. Let me go into a background of what theology is. It's really a combination of two words. Theos, which is God, and, and Logos, which is God's word and God's intelligence. It is the view that a study of what God says and the study of God's view of things. Now, I would think to anybody in this room today to look at the word theology, a study of the view of how God sees things would be important to you because this is creator God. This is not God that came on the scene like many world religions have, a God who showed up and began to have followers that followed them. These are not the true gods of the world, but the God of creation is the God that we have been looking at and his word, the Bible, is the truth that we have. And to know what God's view is of anything in life is incredibly important to you and I who are God followers and Christ followers. It's incredibly important to the world around us too because he is the creator of the world. He's the designer of the world. And so his view of the world is amazingly, amazingly important. So what are those theologies? The truth is if we don't utilize and stand on the theology of God, we only have a few other options. And culture is taking those options. Those options are thoughts like humanism or independence or outright rebellion or agnosticism or even atheism where... The world looks to man to solve the problems and man to fulfill desires and man to come up with explanations about how the world came into existence. That's your option. Theology or the idea that man has all the answers. I don't know about you, but I've been around long enough where I know man does not have all the answers and God does. And so that's why we study the theology of scripture, the theology of what God says. So there are three theologies I'm gonna give you today. Let me share them one at a time with you and then come back and begin to elaborate. First of all, we're going to look at the theology of gender today. Then we're gonna to look at the theology of marriage and then the theology of sexuality. 
Now, those are three really big rocks, wouldn't you say, in our culture today? Three big topics of contention and argument today. What does God say about gender? What does God say about marriage? What does He say about sexuality? Well, going back to the creation account, we see the foundation God has laid for each of those understandings from God's perspective and what should be from our perspective. Beginning, first of all, with a theology of gender. If you look with me in verse 18, we pick up the creation account there. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And in this creation account, we hear for the first time something that's not been said in all the six days to that moment of creation. We've never heard the phrase, not good. Every day it is God created, God spoke, and these things came into existence and it was good. The Lord saw it and it was good. And again, the next day, the Lord saw it and it was good. And the next day, the same way and the same way all the way through creation until now. And at this point, it simply says that God said it's not good for man to be alone. It's not that God's created something bad in creating man. It's just simply that it's not complete yet. It's not good in that it's not complete. And he still has another aspect of creation to go where he creates the second gender, which is woman. Now, all this is coming from the architectural designer of life. All this is coming from the creator himself. And when we talk about genders, when we talk about how God created man and God created woman, we're really talking about very sacred, very holy ground. There's nothing holier than this, nothing more sacred than this. This is God's design being created and lived out from the day of creation. Now, let me be clear today. The Bible speaks specifically of only two genders of mankind the male and the female. The reality is in God's perfect wisdom, this is what he designed. This is what God created. And what do we find out about them? First of all, that man and woman distinctively differ. Men and women are different. Do we agree with this today? We know that's true. And in verse 22, the Bible says, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Now, we've got this great creation account. And as you read that account in chapter two, you see that God did put Adam to sleep. He did open up his side and take from his side a rib with which he created woman. All kinds of interesting insights in that. But I'd like to stop and just make an observation, first of all. It's, it's a personal observation. I'm glad God put man to sleep when he created woman. Otherwise, I have no idea what we come up with. He didn't need man's advice. He didn't need man's uh, interference. He didn't need anything like that. Who knows what we would have if man had have spoken into the creation of woman, but God put man to sleep and he took out of his side that rib with which he created the woman. Now this is a really beautiful picture of creation here, very, very specific. They are a part of each other, unlike all the other living creatures. He shaped man, but he fashioned woman. And she is more fashionable, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's not a joke, it's just the way it is. Adam was just a clump of dirt, but, but Eve was far more refined in this creation aspect. She's perfectly unique from Adam and at the same time, perfectly equal to Adam. In fact, the woman couldn't be more different from the man. If you, if you wonder about that someday, just Google differences between men and women and see what you come up with and all these lists of the differences between men and women. Every marriage seminar I've ever been to or watched opens up with the differences between men and women as though we need to be reminded 
So many differences. We're, we're so different from one another. We're on opposite ends of the spectrum. God made us to differ. We differ physically. We differ mentally. We differ socially. We differ emotionally. We differ verbally. We differ in every way that our brains work and our bodies work. We're complete opposites, but we're also complementary. What an incredible thing God has done and created male and female, man and woman, in that we are different, but at the same time, we are complementary. And that leads me to also say that men and women distinctly fit each other. There will never be a better fit. No social construct, no orchestration of how people fit together will ever match man and woman fitting together, being different, but at the same time, uniquely fit for each other the way God has created this. In verse 18, it says this, I will make a helper suitable for him. I know sometimes people spend a lot of time with that word helper, insinuating that it's somehow inferior to man, but it absolutely is not inferior in any way. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead. He would come after Jesus ascended as what? The helper, the Holy Spirit, the helper will come to you and he'll dwell in you forever. So Jesus refers to someone who is co-existent, co-eternal, co-equal as the helper. In no way do we look at the word helper as inferior in any way. It simply says that she is another, just like Adam, except complementary and different. And this distinctive fit, just like members of the Godhead fit together means that they work together in incredible harmony. That's God's design. And only by both genders being present is mankind complete. Only when God has created man and then woman does he say, it is very good. It is complete. Now, when God says something's complete, that means you can't add anything to it. When God says something complete, it means that there is no later revision to that. He doesn't have to go back and rebuild humanity. When God says something is complete and something is very good, that's the exclamation mark from God that says, this is the way it is, and it is very good. So here we have this picture of creation with male and the female, the man and the woman portrayed in a beautiful way. Now, 4,000 years after creation, Paul acknowledges that, and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, however, in the Lord... Neither is the woman independent of the man, nor is the man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So there's Paul, the apostle, acknowledging both the difference and the fit, and they alone constitute complete creation. Now there's another line here in this creation account and that's in verse 24 and it says, and they shall become one flesh. Now I realize we've jumped down to the latter part of the passage, but this also is part of their complementary differences. They shall become one flesh. The Bible says when Adam saw Eve, God brought Eve to Adam and when Adam saw Eve, he responded in in a poetical way. I mean, here's a guy, the first guy speaking poems the moment he sees the woman. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That still today is a statement that's used in in, in Israel as they acknowledge the beauty of creation and the goodness of what God has done. So that shall become one flesh. Different authors 
write over the years about man's response to woman. And uh, I've included some of these kind of in a collage of statements. She's my unique kind, Adam said. She's human like me, one flesh with me. She's like me and yet perfectly unlike me, so as to be the exact suitable counterpart for me. It's not only true physically and anatomically for sexual relationships, but deeper than that in profound personal psychological ways. John Piper, who loves superlatives, who uses lots of adjectives, said it like this. Together they are good. There is no other creature on the planet that is suitable for him but the woman. She is radically, gloriously, profoundly human, standing before God with Adam side by side. That's John Piper. All those statements are so true. God has done an incredible thing by making male and female. However, our culture today would argue the point of two genders. I don't think it's necessarily just recent, but in recent years, like no other era of history, our culture has rejected this design and created an intersex fluidity between male and female that got many stopping points on the line between male and female. And it's everywhere. Today it's being taught in schools. You find it in HR departments of businesses, in medical clinics, in politics, on social media. Everywhere the word is gender fluidity. Be whatever you want to be on any spectrum you can possibly imagine. Let me pause for just a moment and say, those who follow God cannot be discipled by social media. You cannot be discipled by mass media, by culture. You cannot be discipled by, by people who do not know the God of creation. You must be discipled by the God of creation. He will grow you and help you know the truths by which we are to walk. And yet all around us is the noise of gender fluidity and we need to be aware of that. The only reason there is an idea of gender fluidity is because there is the resisting of theology, that's that word again, and embracing what is atheistic and humanistic, removing trust in the creator and placing trust in the creature instead. I'm gonna put a timeline on the screen here for a moment. And you'll notice on that timeline, there is on the left, the male, and on the right, there's a female, and then a series of dots in between. Now, if you were to go and research gender terminology and gender ideas, you'll find about 64 to 72, depending on what articles you read, types of genders that people identify as today. I've left just a few dots on there because we don't have enough time to talk about everybody's imagination, but just a few. Here are some of those gender names. Those gender names include agender, gender fluid, gender queer, intersex, non-conforming, or trans. And they would place themselves somewhere between the created male or the created female. And the reason they place themselves there is because they have paved their way with feelings and desires and dissatisfaction with who they are and what they were created to be. And in their search for finding a fit in their life with what they feel that they are, they're looking for some other kind of gender to be. And along with the false promises of sexual fulfillment from exploration, they really find misery and they find dissatisfaction and regret. It's literally a mental issue, not a physical one. Now that's not just me saying that, and that's not just the Bible saying that. 
Did you know that today's gender fluid crowd simply says it is a matter of brain and not organs? You are what you think you ought to be, what you want to be. It's not a matter of how you were born biologically. But the Bible would teach us that how we were born biologically, male or female, we were also given a brain to that same biology makeup. A man, for example, who is a biological male has a male brain. A woman who is biologically female has a female brain. And we understand how that works well together. But the world today would say, whatever you think you ought to be, that's what you ought to be, despite how you were born physically. Psychiatrists and psychologists actually use the term gender dysphoria, which means gender confusion. They call it confusion. And it literally means dissatisfaction with one's gender and uneasiness or unhappiness about how one was born. But confusion about one's gender only comes from the preoccupation of a few questions in your mind. And those questions are, what do I want? What do I desire to be? What do I feel like I ought to be? The more you focus on that, the more you can imagine different forms that you might turn into, but you're still biologically male or biologically female based on creation. I read a fascinating story last week uh, of a man whose name was Ollie England, or Ollie London. His name is Ollie London. He's from England. And if you haven't followed the story, it's very interesting. He came out last week saying that he was trans, trans, transitioning once again to yet another biological makeup. He was born a male, but he was dissatisfied with how he looked facially. He'd been raised for a time in Korea and loved the appearance of the Korean facial structure. So he had a number of surgeries so he could be more Korean in his look. And after a time with that, he realized that didn't bring satisfaction. That didn't make him happier. It didn't make him have any more acceptance than he had before. So he thought, you know, this is not working, but, but maybe if I turn myself into a female, I'll find more happiness and more joy there. So he had a number of surgeries that made him more feminine. He didn't have the most radical surgeries, but he had a number of them so he could look and appear more feminine and became a transgendered woman. And after 200 days of that, he said, this is enough. I realize now I can't find my satisfaction in another makeup in terms of Korean instead of English. I can't find satisfaction in being a woman instead of a, of a male. Now I'm transitioning back to my original biological state. I am now a man from this day forward. Well, I have news for Ollie, and that is he was always a man. And I think he's coming back to that saying, okay, I now know I was always a man. I don't say this to ridicule him. Here's a man who says, accept me for who I now know I am. And then in his article, he simply says, don't go and experiment with your gender. I made the experimentation. I had the multiple surgeries and I'm telling you, it does not bring satisfaction. This is not a Christian. I'm not even sure he's a God-fearing man at all. He may be atheistic, but here's the voice of experience. You won't find satisfaction looking for yourself to be another gender. Now, when I hear stories like that, I don't get angry. It's not something that makes me upset with them, but I am grieved. I'm grieved that someone would walk in that direction. They would bring all those consequences on their life. I'm grieved and I'm sad because Christ and the creator God of the universe could bring them satisfaction right where they are. It's so important for us to know that that's the truth. In Romans chapter one, 
2,000 years ago, Paul said to the Romans, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Right at the heart of it all, this is the truth that people are ignoring. When we worship the, the creator, then we begin to surrender to his ways, to his truths. When we worship the creature, we only get how we feel at that moment. We only get how someone else lures us to feel about ourselves or our lives or our gender or our sexuality or anything else. You cannot worship and serve the creature. Worship and serve the creator. It's the only way to be in alignment with the creator who is your God. Now, the theology of gender tells us that God made us male or female. And no matter our momentary feelings or our confusion or our frustration, we are called to live in alignment with how God has created us in his perfect design. Only in alignment with our creator will we ultimately find joy and satisfaction and purpose. And this is not just true of gender questions. It's true of every aspect of our life. Only in the alignment of God, only in alignment of his ways and his purposes for our life will we find the joy that everybody wants. We won't find that joy anywhere else except in him. And I think the evidence is clear. So what do we do with this? First of all, know who we were created to be from birth. Make sure you know who you were created to be from birth, biologically. God makes that very clear. Make sure your children, your family understand that. Make sure those around you understand that. Then lovingly and patiently point the way to satisfaction in life through Christ and no other way to people that are on all those spectrums. You won't find satisfaction through sexual pursuits or through a gender identity that you weren't born with. We need to point out that there's freedom from the sinful self-worship by coming to embrace Christ. And there are people who think they can't change from their feelings, and they're right. They can't change by themselves. We can't change them either, but the gospel of Christ can change everything on the inside of us to fit with how we're created on the outside. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old things have passed away. All things become new. The answer is always the gospel, and that's why it's such good news for people of every walk of life. The theology of gender. But the creation account also gives us the theology of marriage. Look at verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Do you notice something here? Already, God is talking about his marriage design. Before there's an earthly father, before there's an earthly mother, he's already talking about what's going to happen when a man leaves his father and his mother. He's always, already making his plan known. In a nutshell, God's design for a man and a woman to become husband and wife and experience spiritual, psychological, and physical oneness. Not all marry, of course. But if we marry, God's design for marriage is this one. And men and women who simply live together do not have this alignment. Those who are in same-sex relationship do not have this alignment, nor any other variance. You do not experience what God has designed for you to have in marriage, nor can you be till you come back to God's design. Only then can it be real and deep and thorough. And I have people today say, well, what, what about Jesus? Jesus didn't say anything about gender. And so I want to take a moment and just ask the question, what does Jesus say about gender? What does he say about sexuality? What does Jesus say about marriage? 
And Jesus quotes Genesis 2, just like we're quoting Genesis 2 right now. If you have your Bibles, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus asks a question about divorce. And as he answers that question, he affirms the creation account and brings the listeners to the point of what marriage is all about. Here's what he says in Matthew 19, verse four. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus adds, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So here's Jesus, the sinless son of God, Everyone agrees that Jesus is compassionate and loving and understanding. He identifies fully with us in every way, yet without sin. And when asking the question, how many genders are there? What is marriage all about? What's sexuality all about? Jesus answers the same way Genesis chapter two teaches us. Bring your theology into the modern day. Jesus says, this is what God created. And when he talks about marriage, it means a few things. First of all, it's a, a unique relationship. A unique relationship. A man shall leave his father and his mother. Do you notice the leaving? It's not rejecting the biological family. It's that from two families, a third one is formed. And that third one is the one with the husband and the wife, the man and the woman who become a, an entirely unique family and begin an incredible journey that they have before God. Hey, married couples, you're a thing. I mean, God had a design for you to be married. And you're part of two families, but now you're a part of a new third family. So where will you go? What will you do? Who will you worship? What will you pass on in terms of faith to the next generation? The responsibility is amazing. The opportunity is incredible. It's an unprecedented call to pass faith on. But keep in mind also, if you leave your father and mother to be joined to another you also leave a lot of friends behind, not in the sense of having no social interaction, but in the sense of not having interaction at that level. Because the husband and the wife have this unique covenant relationship that's far beyond anything our friends could bring us. Marriage is not just two friends, but it's more. It's more personal, it's more intimate, it's more unique, more unmatchable in the relationship than anything else on the planet and it's closely linked with your relationship with God himself. That's why marriage is to be protected and cultivated and invested in. That's why you must grow in marriage. That's why you thrive in your marriage. That's why you rejoice and enjoy and celebrate your marriage because God has given you something incredibly special. But it's also inter interdependent. Not only is it unique, but the scripture says he should be joined with his wife. And joined means to stick together, to adhere, to be glued together. And this is not random. God said, I've got this design where a man and a woman are to come together as husband and wife for all of their lives. And Jesus basically said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You're joined, you're glued together. I remember 44 years ago, saying I do to my wife, putting the ring on my finger, putting the ring on her finger and walking out. And I thought to myself, I didn't really say it out loud to her at the time, but I said, you're stuck with me now. <laughs> and I'm really glad you are. And I'm still glad she is. Because we needed to be committed permanently. This is not a contract. It's not a negotiation. This relationship is a covenant relationship. Right. And it means we're in it for the long game. And it means sometimes it's extremely difficult 
in the way we interact and, and how we have to make it work, but it takes commitment to do that. And this marriage is not based on, on sexuality and it's not based on, on compatibility and it's not based on having common interests. It's based on commitment. That plan A, plan B, plan C is for that marriage and that's what it's based on. It's a covenant and we're dependent upon each other. Now then in this same text is the theology of sexuality. In verse 25 and 26, we see these words. And they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As if it's not enough to cover these other two, we have yet another item that needs clarity, and that is sexuality. The idea today is that sexuality is fluid, just like gender is fluid for so many. First, we heard more about sexual fluidity, and now we're hearing more about gender fluidity. It's a slippery slope. When you start moving away from God's clearly designed purposes, it's only going to become more complicated as time goes on. But the idea that sex is fluid today is very dominant. Cultural celebrates, cultural celebrities and others celebrate individual identification, individual expression, and these amount to dreams and illusions and desires and lies that have been cultivated by the enemies of our soul. And what they don't often realize is they're pulling at massive foundation stones that all of life is really built on and expecting that nothing really bad will happen as a result of that. But unfortunately, that's not how foundation stones work. Some experiment with sexual fluidity, hoping to escape crumbling lives or crumbling culture, or they're just absolutely oblivious to it all, which is a very, very real possibility today. But creation makes it very obvious. God's design declares that human beings find physical and sexual completeness exclusively in monogamous heterosexual marriage. And scripture calls this, in essence, the original design or natural order. It's clear and unmistakable in creation. It's clearly affirmed by Jesus and the gospels. It was clearly accepted by the epistles and the writers of the epistles, which are the apostles. It's also clearly accepted for 6,000 years in human history. Uh, here's, the, here's what's accepted, here's what's known. Any deviation from sexuality outside of one man, one woman marriage has been prohibited by scripture for thousands of years and continues to be. No matter how people try to re-architect or re-look at the scriptures, it still says the exact same thing. Modern sexual experimenters are doing everything they can to twist the scripture today to make them feel more validated in their sexual kind of exploration. But it's always gonna say what it says. It's always gonna mean what it meant originally. Paul wrote in Romans chapter one, which by the way is an incredibly difficult chapter to walk through, especially if you have people like me that you know, that you love, that have departed from God's design. You don't read this in celebration of somebody's right and somebody's wrong. You read this in analysis of what went wrong. And you read it with grief in your heart. You read it with, with sadness for those that may never experience God's goodness till they come back to his design. And here's what Paul wrote in Romans 1, verse 26 and verse 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also the man abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
Now, Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are bringing Scripture to us. There is no greater love, there is no greater passion for anyone except what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross to pay for our sin. Greater love has no man than this, and yet he still speaks the truth to people that are making decisions all over the board from his creative order. So these words are hard. They're hard to hear, and they're hard to share, and they're hard to realize in our minds that this is where people are who make choices outside God's design. Now, instead, God calls us to rejoice and thrive in the gender given at birth, to look for the kind of marriage he calls us to, and to express sexuality in the bonds of marriage. So, Pastor, how are we supposed to respond to people around us in the world today? And I just wrote a brief sentence that I hope you'll take to heart. I believe it's my responsibility, your responsibility, to be kind and loving and calm and pointing out the truth that Jesus gives us, but also that we love them with the love that Jesus has. And we love our gay friends. We love those who make gender decisions and marriage decisions and sexuality decisions with our whole heart, knowing that Christ is always the only answer for them. You're not gonna change somebody's mind by arguing with them, but you're gonna pray for them. And you're gonna be amazed at what God can do when you pray. Many have prayed for years for their friends to come to know the truth that we're talking about today. Keep praying, don't stop. God is faithful to the end. There's a game out there that's called Jenga, and most of us are familiar with it now. Jenga is a block building game. The object is to build a tower with blocks, and then players take turns removing one block at a time, leaving an increasingly unstable tower. Of course, the object of the game is to see how many blocks you can remove until the tower crumbles, and hopefully your opponent is the one that makes the, the tower tumble and not you. That's the object of the game, to stay safe. But I want you to look at this Jenga stack for just a moment and I want you to imagine what happens when we remove blocks in our lives. Some of us remove the blocks of relationships or health or routine. Sometimes we pull out family or finances or rest or time alone with God. We remove worship, we remove prayer, we remove study and we think it'll be fine but at some point it gets kind of shaky. But when you get down to the bottom, the base foundation in our lives are things like God, creation, truth, gender, marriage, sexuality. If you remove the bottom blocks, these foundational blocks to this stack of blocks, everything will crumble. Just like the picture. And it's crumbling today. It's crumbling in our culture. It's crumbling in our schools. It's crumbling all around us. There is no other outcome but this crumble for culture. But there can be a different outcome for you if you come to Christ, if you surrender to his ways, if you allow him to determine all the things about your life that are so important. It can change for every individual who comes to Christ and he makes them new. But it's gonna crumble around us as people continue to pursue these kinds of lifestyles. So within God's design, Adam and Eve were standing before God as one. They were holy, they were blessed, they were naked, they were unashamed of the passion and the desires and even the consummation of their marriage together before God as God designed it. So a married couple, you stand before God as one. And I would say you should be unashamed of what God calls you to. 
And for all of us, we stand before God as man or as a woman, unashamed and embracing who he called us to be. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Learn to mature and grow in that. Thrive in that. That's God's plan for your life. And within that alignment, you have the joy and the celebration and the, the satisfaction that you can only find in being in tune with your creator. No sexual experience, no change of what you look like or what you're made up of can ever bring the kind of satisfaction that your heart will find that being in alignment with God and God alone. And I call you to that alone. Creation calls you to that alone. Christ calls you to that alone. And he paves the way with the blood that he shed on the cross so that you could come to him and find that alignment, that forgiveness, and that salvation in Jesus Christ alone. A few years ago, more than 30 years ago, I had a conversation with a young woman who was attending our church. And uh, she came to tell me that she was going to pursue a lesbian lifestyle. In fact, she had already begun to do that. And she felt like she needed to let me know. And I did appreciate her conversation with me that day. But in that conversation, I responded to her that God's word says that's not the right direction for you. Nor is it true for anybody. And she allowed me to walk her through what the Bible said about homosexuality and about sexuality and gender. And when I got through reading Romans 1, verse 20 and verse 25 and 26, I read in the most loving, compassionate way I could. She stood up. She was angry. She slammed her hand down on the desk. She said, I will never come back into this church again. I will hate you forever. And she left. Obviously, she was very mad, very angry, very upset that someone would contradict what her heart was telling her she thought she needed to do. And I thought, well, I did my best to love her well. I did my best to tell her the truth. And I didn't like the way it worked out, but I couldn't do anything about that. About three or four years later, I was at a student ministry camp and I felt a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it was that young lady standing there with a young man. And she said, do you remember me? And I thought in my mind, how could I not remember you? <laughs> she said, I just want you to know that I'm thankful that you told me the truth. She said, God has done a work in my life and I want you to meet my fiance. We're going to get married in just a few months. This young man, this young woman, we're going to be married because this young woman had turned away from the direction she was going in, surrendered herself to God, and the joy on her face was so radically different from what I remembered her face being like before. People, there's hope, there's joy, there's satisfaction in Christ. It can be very good in God's design. Amen. Build on the foundation that God has given us and no other. In just a few moments, we're gonna close. We're gonna have decision stations as we do every week. And I encourage you to stop by the decision station and talk to somebody about any part of this message, any part of your life. Talk to somebody about placing your faith and trust in Christ who died on the cross for you, receiving forgiveness of sin and direction for life. God is wanting to do business with your heart and your life. So those decision stations are lit up and ready to go when you leave today. I also invite you to our guest reception center. I'd love to personally meet you. I'd love to say hello and thank you for coming today to our services. And so right out the center exit door across the hallway, there is a glass room and I'm in that room and please stop by and talk to us. Thirdly, I wanna encourage you to take the invite cards that are outside on the tables as you exit. Invite someone to come back next week with you. Because it's very important for people to hear the word as it's planted in their hearts. It's like seed. And they may not agree with everything, but they get to hear what God has said in their scripture. 
And this allows them to be open to what God may say in their lives in the future. It's telling the truth to people and all people need to hear truth. So I wanna encourage you to invite someone and bring them with you next week. Would you stand with me as we pray today? Father, in Jesus' name, I'm so grateful for this day. I'm grateful for the opportunity to worship you, to lift you up, to look at your word. And Father, I know in this room today, there are many that have thoughts, decisions, or friends that they need to speak with today. Father, I know that there are those in this room that are at the brink of giving their lives to you and they wanna trust you, but they've always kind of made those decisions themselves. And Father, I pray today that they can have confidence that you will be the best possible choice for them. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself. Allow them to know you as Lord and Savior. Father, as we walk through this life, help us to represent you well in love, with kindness, and with truth. In Jesus' name, amen.